Welcome to ESG Energize, where we discuss the latest developments in the environmental, social, and governance arena that are impacting the energy industry today. Here is your host, Delfina Govia. This is Delfina Govia, the Chief Sustainability Officer for FRA, a global logistics provider with an unflinching commitment to sustainability and ESG and where we are collaborating with our customers and our suppliers to deliver innovative, sustainable supply chain solutions. Today on this episode of ESG Energized, we are talking to the CEO of VAST. Craig Wood is joining us all the way from Australia. Welcome to the show. Hi, Delphine. Thanks for having me on. So, Craig, I'm anxious to have a little bit of a discussion with you here about VAST. And let's start right off. Tell my audience, who is VAST? What does VAST do? Sure. So, VAST is an Australian technology and project development company. Uh, And for the last 13 years, we've been uh, working our way down here uh, to develop the world's leading concentrating solar thermal technology. So um, it's called CSP for short, um, and it's important given the name's that long. Uh, But what CSP does is it uses mirrors to uh, concentrate and then capture the sun's energy as heat. Uh, That heat is then transferred into typically um, a a storage medium that's stored in a giant tank. It amounts essentially to a giant thermal battery or, or a thermos like you might take to your kid's sport, but at an industrial scale. Um, And that thermos is critical because it allows the energy that we've captured from the sun to be dispatched at any point in time. So in the context of uh, power grids, for example, where you might have lots of photovoltaics doing daytime energy, you might have lots of wind turbines providing energy when it's windy, you might have some batteries providing one to two to four hours of storage. CSP is actually a very important part of the mix because in hot, sunny places, that ability to dispatch electricity based on the thermal energy um, of anywhere between 8 to 20 hours is an important complement that actually allows you to push decarbonisation from typically 50-60% up into the 80-90% region. Um, And that's that's critical, obviously, as the coal retires and it's an alternative to natural gas. So that's that's the core of our technology is, is concentrating solar thermal. Um, the other thing that's that's really interesting and that we've started working on really in the last 12 or so months um, is another application uh, where we're taking the heat from that thermos, combining that with the dispatchable electricity and using those two energy inputs uh, as uh, the primary energy source for a green methanol project. Um, I'm sure your listeners are aware that methanol is rapidly emerging as one of the preferred decarbonisation routes for the global shipping industry. Um, yes. And our and our uh, solar refinery that we're developing in Port Augusta will be a world first demonstration of how you can use heat plus power um, and combine those, those two energy sources to uh, combine hydrogen carbon dioxide to produce green methanol for shipping. So that's that's Fantastic. the business. Thirteen years. Um, we were fortunate after ten years to also be awarded the International Energy Agency's Technical Innovation Award in two thousand and nineteen. Uh, and since then, we've really been focused on project development uh, to, to demonstrate the technology and start monetizing the technology. So this is it's it's a very it's a very interesting concept. We've all heard of CSPs before. We're talking about the combination of of 
the the thermal and the power component. What I need to understand, and this is why I was anxious to talk to you, is that CSP, I always thought was a dead technology. What what is it about that what you're doing that m- makes anybody want to sit up and take notice now if we all thought that it was a dead technology? Yeah, look, it's a great question. So certainly if you roll the clock back 10 or 15 years, um, all of the power nerds were actually probably putting their money on CSP as, as being the technology that would come through and provide the majority of daytime energy. Um, clearly right. CSP lost that race, right, the, between – um, American, German, Chinese, and other investors. There's about you know been seventy five billion dollars put into the PV panel supply chain, and that's just brought the cost right down to the point where it's very clear that photovoltaics will provide the bulk of daytime energy. So CSP lost that race basically due to the fact it's too expensive. Um, why it's coming back now? It, look, it's partly to do with stuff that we've done at Vast, but it's also I think really importantly to do with the realization of what's required to actually enable us to continue the decarbonisation journey that we all need to go on. And and I think that's probably the more important point. So if you think about um, that nighttime electricity piece, you know, the decarbonisation between 60 and 90%, if you're in a hot, sunny place where pumped hydro isn't available, CSP is the, is the cheapest and it's really the only uh, practical source of energy in those sorts of markets. If you look at industrial process heat, uh, where you need significant volumes of heat, and typically at the moment that's provided by burning fossil fuels, often gas, um, again, if you're in a hot, sunny place, CSP can actually provide that energy for you today at a price that is less than what you would be paying uh, to burn gas. Um, so it's it's these sectors where or applications where you need um, the, the specific benefits that come from having either the dispatchability or the heat, or a combination of both, that are really um, bringing people's attention back to CSP as one of the core technologies that we require to complete the decarbonisation journey. So that's that's kind of the market piece. Um, in terms of the technology, really what our innovation is all about is um, taking the modular systems that have been the primary um, volume of CSP that's been deployed. So, you know, we, we call it CSP 1.0, but parabolic trough, um, for the for the CSP nerds out there, um, you know, <laughs> CSP has there's about six and a half gigawatts of it installed globally. The the lion's share of that is definitely parabolic troughs. Um, the troughs are great because they're modular, which makes them cheap, um, uh, and they're also uh, very bankable. Uh, the only issue with them is that they are too expensive, and the reason for that is the fluid that they use to to collect the sun's energy has a temperature limit of about 400 Celsius. It's a it's a mineral oil. Um, and that ultimately means that by the time you're spinning an electric turbine, you're doing that at between 330 and 350 degrees, which is just too cool to allow you to have an efficient power cycle. So there is still there are still parabolic troughs being built, but about 10 years ago, everyone said, look, we need to get to higher temperatures, and that was why people moved to central tower systems. So if you've um, flown into um, any of the western states in the US, you would have seen uh, a couple of um, notable examples of central towers. You're talking about a 750-foot high tower with mirrors the size of a house up to a mile away from the tower. So quite magnificent engineering structures. Um, but the, the reason that that was done was to try and push to high temperatures. 
but those those plants have had some significant challenges. Um, essentially, what we've done is we said, look, modularity is great because it gives you a whole bunch of benefits around cost and redundancy, but we need to use the tower morphology in order to get to the high temperatures to allow us to have an efficient power cycle. And so what we've done is we've combined those two things into a, what we call a modular tower system, and we and the, we link those modules together um, using liquid sodium metal as our heat transfer fluid. So it's really the innovation um, that we've brought to the table is in the design of the front end of the system and really importantly in the thermal process management to allow us to actually have a system that is better that's cheaper um, and importantly, that's much more controllable and reliable um, than any of the previous generations of the technology. So you did a very nice job of, of describing the the towers, the modular towers. Uh, let me go back to you talking about the thermos, as you said, that sits in the middle of this, which is the storage uh, device, right? For, for yeah. all of this, it's filled with salts, I think you said? Correct. With a type of salts. For my listeners... What does that look like? And I know that you can put it in terms that my oil and gas uh, colleagues will understand. Yeah, sure. So if you've ever been anywhere near an oil refinery, you would have seen those giant tanks that they have um, for storing product. In essence, which what we've we're all doing, climbed to the top of. Most of my listeners, we've we've at least at least ninety percent of my listeners have climbed to the top of those tanks. <laughs> yeah. So in essence, what we do is we build um, we build several of those. So we have two tanks. One of them is called the coal tank. Um, it stores salt at about 304 degrees. So in the morning, all of the salt is in the coal tank. What we do then is progressively during the day, we move the salt through a heat exchanger and add energy to it. And then we store it in the hot tank at 550 Celsius. So, so essentially what we're doing is we're taking cold salt in the morning, heating it up and storing it during, um, during the day. And then when we need to, we can take the heat from, uh, so let me rephrase, take the salt from the hot tank, use that to either create steam to spin a turbine, or we can use it directly in process heat applications um, as, as thermal energy. So, so those tanks are critical there. They provide the energy storage, but in terms of what they look like, yes, it's like one of those oil and gas tanks, except with a lot more insulation because um, the salt, when it's at 550 degrees, um, it, it wants to lose temperature pretty rapidly, so we have very thick insulation. Um, but but that's really uh, it's just that simple. It's two tanks uh, with lots of insulation to make sure that we can keep the energy in. Okay, so let's then take it to one take one more level of of understanding, and that is always around an actual project. Can you talk to me about a project that you have existing in place and? the application that goes with it? Sure. So the project that we're currently developing in Port Augusta, which is in South Australia, is a 30 megawatt steam turbine, and that will be coupled with uh, eight hours of thermal storage uh, provided by molten salts um, in the arrangement that I was just discussing. Um, the front end of that plant will look like eight of our modules, um, so four on the west side, four on the east side, stitched together by piping, um, where we'll move sodium uh, between the receivers to gather the energy from the sun and bring that back into the salt, and ultimately we'll use that to create electricity to spin uh, by spinning a turbine um, to provide dispatchable energy into the grid um, overnight. So that's that's the primary project that we're working on in Port Augusta. 
The other thing uh, that's interesting in Port Augusta is the project that we're developing over the fence, which is uh, what we call Solar Methanol 1. And at Solar Methanol 1, what we're doing is we're taking about 10 to 20% of the energy from uh, VS1, the CSP plant, and we're taking that energy as a combination of heat plus power, and we're using that to partly power a solar refinery where we're, we're taking water, turning that into hydrogen. We're taking carbon dioxide and we're mixing those to create syngas and ultimately methanol, um, which is going to be used to decarbonise um, some of the, the shipping that goes on down here in Australia. That project is very interesting globally because, um, I'm, again, I'm sure your listeners are aware that methanol is rapidly emerging as one of the preferred routes to decarbonise the global shipping fleet. Um, and yes. if you look at what needs to occur um, in order to deliver the volumes that that industry requires, um, it's either going to be a hell of a lot of um, biogenic source material, um, but actually it's our belief that that's only going to get you so far and that we are going to need to see um, e-fuels, so um, and in our case um, solar methanol, um, to fill uh, really a very material part of that requirement um, as we head into the 2030s and beyond. So let's let's stay on that topic just for a minute. What are you on on what the the needs are, the global needs in this market? Where do you, having spent such a, a an enormous amount of time successfully so in this space, what are your your broader views of what's going on in the renewables market today? And the challenges that we're facing and the solutions that you think that we're going to be able to bring to bear. Do we, do we have hope, Craig? Do we have hope in needing a lot of these aspirations that we have as, as industries, as individual companies and as governments? I think it's important to always have hope. Um, this is as a starting principle. Um, look, if I was forced to say yes or no, yes is my is my honest answer. And the reason I say that is that we actually already have the majority of the technologies that we need to push the decarbonisation to where it needs to get to. So, you know, if you just simply deployed PV, wind, offshore wind, batteries, pumped hydro, and, um, of course, I would say this, CSP, um, I, it, you know, in almost all markets where you operate, where you know around the world, you get to decarbonisation levels of eighty to ninety percent on the electricity side. In process okay. heat, um, it, again, it, it's a more difficult challenge, and it's probably a few years behind the electricity side. But I'm of the view that we have the technologies that we need to get most of the job done there as well. Um, there, there is always going to be um, periods where it the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. And so it's our view that there's going to be a need to burn something. Um, in the near term, I think that has to be gas. Um, in the certainly the medium to longer term, there will be hydrogen and hydrogen derivatives um, that offer, um, offer ways to do that. So at a, at a technical level, I think the answer is yes, there's hope. The real challenge just comes down to how quickly we can deploy those things. Um, there is no shortage of money to put into well-structured projects. The challenge really still is that to uh, to get those projects to be economic, oftentimes there is a, typically it's a small, you know, modest, very modest increase in the cost of that energy. 
um, and ultimately that needs to be borne by someone or you need to wait for long enough that the technology becomes cheap enough that that cost dis- differential disappears. And I think that's really the challenge is are there policy levers that can be pulled that can address that um, that cost imbalance, you know, carbon Waiting pricing. for the technology to catch up, right? <clears throat> yeah, you, you either price carbon or you wait for the technology right. to catch up. And I think they're really the, the two fundamental things uh, that ultimately are going to resolve this. Um, clearly, we need to get on with it. And so if there are mechanisms that can be put in place um, to do that, then then that's great. So what you're talking about, listen, is you've laid out that there isn't a, a one-size-fits-all, that there isn't, you know, one technology versus another technology, that that is the approach is a mix. It's a mixed bag of multiple technologies, multiple types of renewables. And that requires collaboration within the energy, the broader energy industry. Are you seeing, when you talk about policy, uh, are you seeing cross-border collaborations from, you know, yeah. with one, from one country to another? Yeah, we are. Um, you know, Australia's had a, let's say, a checkered history of um, of uh, policy around climate change. Um, and so, you know, sometimes we've been ahead, sometimes we've been behind. But I think, you know, certainly if you look at the last, um, the last several years, um, there's a couple of very notable examples. So one would be, a very recent one would be um, uh, a communique, I think put out by the White House, let's call it in the last month, where... Um, the the administration in the US, um, obviously having implemented the Inflation Reduction Act, um, there is now a move to start to really tie a number of um, the Australian opportunities into um, some of the the structures that the US has in place um, around energy and the transition. So we think that's a very positive development. Um, it's early days. We don't know what the shape of that is yet, but um, but you know certainly Australia and the US um, are becoming closer on the transition side. Um, another good, great example um, that we have benefited from um, is a program called Highgate, which is the Hydrogen German-Australian Transition Initiative. Um, essentially, the German and the Australian governments got together um, and said, Australia's got lots of renewables, Germany's got lots of demand, uh, how do we link those two up? Um, and so they agreed to put um, 50 million euros plus 50 million Australian dollars into a pot um, to fund or to, to partly fund demonstration projects that could essentially move hydrogen or hydrogen derivatives created in Australia um, into the German market. Um, we were one of four program projects uh, that was actually successful as part of that Highgate program um, in the back end of last year. Um, and so our, our solar methanol plant that I mentioned previously in the conversation um, in Port Augusta, that's an 80 million Australian dollar project. Um, $20 million of that is going to be grant funding from the Australian government and $20 million of that will be grant funding from the German government um, with that funding provided under the Highgate program. So there are certainly some some really um, interesting cross-border opportunities that are emerging um, and we see that as a trend that will continue because not everywhere in the world is blessed with the, the level of renewable resource that, um, that Australia or the US is. There are some places uh, where different solutions are required. So... That begs two additional questions. Question number one is, where is the next, where where is the rest of the funding coming from for VAST? Uh, do you have investors or companies that are investing in this project that you're partnering with on this journey? 
Uh, yeah, we do. So it very much depends on which project. I'll, I'll just keep talking about the methanol uh, plant for a moment. So we announced about a month ago um, that a, a German uh, energy company called Marbenuft is actually coming into that project. So they're going to be a 50% owner of that project, contributing 20 million Australian dollars of equity. Um, and we're in discussions with a number of parties about the remaining $20 million on that project. Um, if I take, if I turn to um, the core CSP plant that, we, that we're building, um, there's, uh, there's a funding stack on that that's already in place. So we've, we've secured up to $65 million of grant funding um, from ARENA, which is the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. Um, ARENA has been a long-term supporter of our business for about a decade, uh, so they know us very well. But... Uh, but that grant is uh, it's really important for first of its kind projects like ours um, to, 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 to help defray some of the one-time and upfront costs to allow the energy that's produced to be economic. Um, we've also um, been able to access $110 million of concessional financing from the federal government here, which is a, it's a, a similar arrangement in many respects to um, the sorts of loans that your DOE um, provides mm -hmm. to renewable projects, um, but that's important as well. Um, and that leaves us with a 45 million Australian dollar um, equity contribution. That um, that's that's my problem. Um, the way that we're that we're looking to raise the money um, is actually through um, a business combination uh, with a, a US listed entity um, called Neighbours Energy Transition Corporation. So we actually announced uh, in the middle of February um, uh, that we'd signed a, a deal to merge ourselves to, to spec ourselves um, with NetSea. Um, and we're currently working through that process um, uh, in the US to get ourselves up and listed on the boards later this year. So I'm interested to hear you talk about your partnership as well with, with Neighbours uh, Energy Transition Ventures, because that is a testament to what we've been talking about continuously on this podcast, which is the investment of the traditional oil and gas, oil field services, drilling companies into the renewable space. It just shows that we are committed as an industry to developing these things. So that the second question that I had for you was just being a little bit selfish and you talking about Australia having such great renewable source of renewable energy. When are we going to see one of these projects in West Texas? It's coming, Delphina. Don't panic. Okay. <laughs> um, look, the, so the honest answer is um, – most off-takers from our projects are standing around and waiting for us to deliver our projects in Port Augusta before they will sign definitive commitments. And that's just simply a commercial reality, right? People want to see our technology built and working at utility scale before they're willing to um, to take risk on that and, and introduce that complexity to their business. So um, in parallel with us executing in Port Augusta on both the CSP and the methanol projects, we are developing a pipeline of opportunities in Australia, in the US uh, and in Saudi, um, where we're looking to bring a number of projects through such that by the time we hit commercial operations date, um, COD in Port Augusta, we're essentially able to hit FID to make the investment decision um, on those projects in those, in those other markets. So uh, West Texas, um, in fact, look, to be completely frank, anywhere in the, the southwest um, you know, as a general rule, if it's orange on Google Maps, it's good for CSP. <laughs> um, so, you know, whether it's Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico, West Texas, California, um, there are interesting opportunities to deploy our technology in all of those states. 
Um, uh, West Texas, uh, we think, is particularly interesting as a first project um, because partly it's um, due to the fact that I uh, now spend a lot of time in Houston with my friends from Neighbours, um, but also it's a very interesting location in terms of being able to um, move electricity uh, but also potentially green fuels um, west, east and also north. Um, so there's a series of off-take discussions that are going on at the moment um, uh, that you know that will hopefully turn into uh, the anchor clients for those projects once we get to that point. I would I would guess that we are a very rich market for for your product. Yeah, look, the US is it's obviously a very large market. Um, it, it's starting to move very quickly, and the interesting thing about it is because it's so large and because there is the depth of capital that um, that is enjoyed in the US. Um, opportunities present themselves earlier. So uh, for, for us, uh, you know, certainly after Australia, uh, it's, our, it's our next target market and we're very much looking forward to establishing our presence in the US and getting on with the job. Okay, so I'm going to switch gears on you. Tell me about you. How did you get to be the CEO of Vast? Tell me about you. What's your journey? Uh, okay, so... My journey, I started life as a mechanical engineer um, but reformed very early um, uh, courtesy of um, a bit of extra study in the UK. So I spent a couple of years um, at Oxford University as a Rhodes Scholar and, and then a third year um, in London doing a finance master's and essentially used that to transition to finance. Um, so I spent after, after the UK a couple of years uh, in New York working for a small investment bank called Lehman Brothers. Um, as a as a power M and A banker, okay, um, and Alta, yeah, and so that was just around the time, just after actually um, Enron and Dynegy um, uh, had their issues. So that was an interesting time in the in the M and A power markets. It definitely was. Um, correct. Then moved back to Australia <laughs> and spent um, spent about a decade uh, in one of the leading private equity firms here in Australia, just a generalist PE shop. Um, left there to go and um, fix up a dairy business that um, that we'd invested in. Um, so ran, well, was CFO and <clears throat> ultimately um, uh, left there as acting CEO uh, for about three and a half years and sort of a, the way these things work, um, through some connections through the private equity firm, I was introduced to Vast uh, about seven and a half years ago. So I've been the CEO for that long. Um it's been an interesting journey. Obviously, you know, developing a technology from the ground up, um, it, it takes time. You get a whole bunch of stuff wrong. You have to go through iterations and each of those takes time. So, um, you know, the, the, the award by the International Energy Agency of their Technical Innovation Award in 2019 after 10 years in business, um, that, was a, that was a great thing for Vast um, and it was a, a really nice um you know, peg in the ground, but the reality is to go and build a business off the back of their technology um, takes a completely different skill set and a completely different set of partners, um, investors, um, and also capabilities within the team. So that's really what we spent the last two, three years developing um, to the point where we're now ready to roll that out in Port Augusta um, and then continue the deployment of the technology in, in the US, Saudi, and other sunny markets around the world. Well, this is an exciting space to keep an eye on this this technology and the development of it can i put into the show notes a link to your website 
that people can access so they can they can go see pictures of this they can go get more information is it what's the website vast dot www.vast.energy it's it's that simple it's that simple so we will correct and there's yeah there's there's lots of um lots of content up there lots of pictures um the modular tower thing when you see the picture um it all becomes very obvious um and that's really that that sort of um elegance and simplification in the design and the the delivery of the technology um is really critical to us without without pushing the engineering um and and the installation and the operations to the point of elegance, uh, we don't think you get the cost to where they need to be. So uh-huh. have a look on the website. Um, there's plenty of content there. I'm definitely going to put. I'm definitely going to look, and I'm definitely going to put that in the show notes. And I thank you for not only being a guest on the show, but for me now being able to tell my listeners that I've had a Rhodes Scholar on ESG Energized. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Craig, for joining thank us. Thank you, Delfina. Great to speak. Join us again next week on the ESG Energized Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.